I want to go ahead and we'll begin with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to increase us the gifts of faith, hope, and love. Especially in the face of great suffering, help us to understand your wisdom, your goodness, and your love for us and for all of humanity. And so we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, again, I want to thank you all for coming tonight uh, for, tonight's, for tonight's topic, Finding God in Katrina. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am not Father Justin Walks. Uh, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald. There was a, an error made on my part um, in the Bishop's Bulletin advertisement for Theology and Tap. I forgot to switch out the presenter. Actually, I put Father Walks in because we had a lot of people last time, so I thought that'd work, but no. Uh, and just a mistake made on my part. The, the parish bulletin notices should have had my illustrious name um, in them, but you never know what ha happens. Um, tonight's topic, to be honest, I feel is beyond me to some degree. It's probably one of the most difficult topics for anybody to speak about. Um, that is the problem of evil and suffering and how it relates to our faith in God. Uh, at the end of August, I would imagine that most, many of you, if not most of you, like me, were glued to your TV sets on that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and following days when Hurricane Katrina uh, came ashore in, near New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, uh, down in Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. Um, we all saw the devastation that Katrina wreaked on New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. And then the, in, the, in the, the aftermath of that, the days following, the people who, for whatever reason, were unable to get out of the city prior to uh, the, the hurricane coming, the suffering that they endured, the, the people who died and, and, and the people who were just thirsting for something to drink, starving for something to eat, uh, waiting for help to come to them. And... For many people, um, not just, of course, those involved, but for those uh, who, who witnessed that, it was definitely a, a, a moment of crisis in faith, or crisis for faith. Uh, when we see suffering, when the reality of suffering is driven home, it can, it can, be, it can lead us to question the meaning of our lives, the question of God's existence, and so on. Um, in St. Thomas's Summa Theologica, St. Thomas, one of the greatest, if not the greatest theologians in church history, and his masterpiece, his masterwork, uh, the Summa Theologiae, in his, that work, uh, St. Thomas always would pose a particular issue, and then he'd offer several objections to it, usually at least three, if not four or five or six, and then he'd, answer, or he'd address the issue, and then he'd respond to the objections. When he addressed the question of the existence of God, he was only able to come up with two fundamental objections to God's existence. One of them was the problem of evil. The problem of evil is probably the most commonly encountered objection to God's existence. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. How do we, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Catholics, address the problem of evil and suffering insofar as we face it and other people face it as well. The goal is to understand how, in the end, in fact, Christianity, and Catholic Christianity in particular, gives the only adequate response to the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. In the end, as we'll see at the end of, of tonight's presentation, hopefully, that is the only way finally to deal with the problem of evil. That is through our own faith as Catholic Christians. The way I want to begin is by looking at what the nature of evil and suffering is and then move on from there to, to try to come um, with hopefully greater and greater clarity to an understanding of how we, again, as followers of Jesus Christ, can understand and respond to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And I want to begin by just looking at the nature of 
evil and the nature of suffering. There are two types of evil, ultimately. When we, we, we break down evil uh, from a theological and philosophical perspective, there are two types of evil, physical evil and moral evil. By physical evil, I mean things like Katrina or the tsunami that struck Asia um, last, just after Christmas last year, or the earthquake that just struck pa uh, Pakistan uh, this week. Those are called physical evil, so natural disasters. Um, the big kinds and the small kinds. Illness and disease are examples of physical evils. Besides that, we have the, the more, well, not more well-known, but when we think of evil, what we probably think of, that is moral evil. Uh, moral evil is evil done by one person against another. And, of course, it's very easy for us uh, to think of examples of moral evil. 9-11, um, the entire 20th century in many ways, uh, with all the wars, uh, the, the, the legalization of abortion, which, of course, is still a, a reality that we face, um, and so on. How many of you have ever um, had the fortitude to read uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Anybody? One? Good. Congratulations, really. Um, Dostoevsky was a late 19th century Russian author, an Orthodox Christian. Uh, and Dostoevsky penned, and we'll be looking at this in a little bit, um, penned what is widely regarded as the greatest challenge to faith by anybody alive. That is, he, he, he constructed the, the greatest argument against God on the basis or, or because of evil and suffering of anybody alive. And he was a fervent believer. Uh, he wasn't an atheist. He believed in Jesus Christ. And yet, he was able to construct what many people regard as the strongest case against God on the basis of evil and suffering. Okay, And I want to... Uh, give you, a, 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 illustrate a little bit what he did. In, in the brothers Karamazov, there are four brothers. Uh, one of them, and I want to, there are two in particular relevant here. One of them was a, a fervent Christian him, himself. Another was an atheist. Ivan is the atheist, and um, uh, Alyosha is the fervent believer. And they're having a conversation at one point, and Ivan begins to tell Alyosha some of the horrors that really happened in the 19th century. Dostoevsky, the novelist, had, had collected stories of atrocities that people would commit against one another during his time, the 19th century. And he, he made them a part of his novel, a part of the case that Ivan made against God. Um, and I'm going to read a summary of that presentation from a book called The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart. And the, the subtitle is, Where Was God in the Tsunami? Uh, Hart is also an Orthodox theologian. He's not Catholic, but he's an Orthodox theologian who has a lot of affinity with Catholic theology. And he wrote this book in response to the tsunamis of last year and people's struggles to deal with them. And in the course of it, he also talks about Dostoevsky and how Dostoevsky constructed this case against faith and put it into the mouth of this character, Ivan. And I'm just going to give a, a, a Hart's summary of what Dostoevsky wrote. To elucidate his complaint, Ivan provides Alyosha with a grim, unremitting, remorseless recitation of stories about the torture and murder of principally children. And, and, and the, the idea there, by the way, is by focusing on what happens to children, children, of course, are the most innocent of us. They've never done anything wrong. And so by looking especially at the suffering of children, the problem of evil and suffering is sharpened um, as much as possible. True stories as it happens that Dostoevsky had collected from the press and from other sources. He tells of Turks in Bulgaria tearing babies from their mother's wombs with daggers or flinging infants into the air to catch them on bayonets before their mother's eyes or playing with babies held in their mother's arms, making them laugh, enticing them with the bright metal barrel, barrels of pistols only then to fire the pistols into the baby's faces. He tells a story of two parents regularly savagely flogging their seven-year-old daughter, only to be acquitted in court of any wrongdoing. He tells the story of a cultured and respectable couple 
who tortured their five-year-old daughter with constant beatings and who, to punish her allegedly for following her bed, filled her mouth with, with excrement and locked her on freezing nights in an outhouse. And Ivan invites Alyosha to imagine that child in the bitter chill and darkness and stench of that place, striking her breast with her tiny fist, weeping her supplications to gentle Jesus, begging God to release her from her misery, and then to say whether anything, the knowledge of good and evil, for instance, could possibly be worth the bleak, brutal absurdity of that little girl's torments. He relates the tale of an eight-year-old surf child who, in the days before emancipation, was bound to the land of a retired general and who accidentally injured the leg of his master's favorite hound by tossing a stone. As punishment, the child was locked in a guardroom through the night and in the morning brought out before his mother and all the other serfs, stripped naked and forced to run before the entire pack of his master's hounds, which were promptly set upon him to tear him to pieces. And Dostoevsky goes on and just gives other examples of a horrors that really happened in the 19th century. And he makes a comment in the novel about how we, sometimes you hear about the, the, the bestiality of some people towards others, and how really that's an insult to the animals, because animals never go to the depths of depravity that man can do against man. So that's an example, those are examples of moral evils, what one human being can do against another, okay? Every one of us, every human being at some level is affected by evil, whether it's physical or moral. There's nothing that any of us can do to, to escape the, the stretch of evil during our lives, simply because all of us die. Death is an evil, a physical evil, and all of us will face that at some point. So all of us, no matter how old or how intelligent or how attractive, face evil in one form or another during our lives. And of course, there are all sorts of other ways that we face evil. The suffering of a loved one, the loss of a loved one, a parent, sibling, child, and so on. Real the evil and suffering is a reality that we all face uh, during our lives. It's, they're realities that we cannot deny, that are undeniable to us. They're apparent and obvious to anybody who pays attention to their lives at all. And again, what happens oftentimes from this is people will ask questions, understandably, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to my family member, my spouse, my child, or whatever? Where is God in this? Where, is God, where was God in the tsunami? Where is God in this cancer? And so on. These are real, legitimate problems that we all have faced, personally or, or with other ones. And again, the problem is, or the, the issue is, the indictment made against God because of evil and suffering. Again, where is God in this suffering? We understand God, as, 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 as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand God to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and so on. And yet, if all of these things are true, why is there evil in the world? Okay, I, I, I'm going to put the ar argument formally and then informally. Um, the argument against God because of evil. Formally, it's, it's like this. If God is all good and all powerful, then he wouldn't allow evil and suffering. Evil and suffering, exi evil and suffering exist, therefore God either doesn't exist, isn't all good, or isn't all powerful. He, either he's not there or not, or he isn't the good God we imagine him to be. He's a despot or he is, he, he is unable to do anything in the face of evil. He's impotent. That's, that's the, the way the argument is often uh, constructed. Informally, it's boiled down in a much more simpler way. If God has the ability to prevent suffering, then why doesn't he do so? Okay? Um, we refer to God, one of the persons of the Trinity, as our Father, right? Okay. What kind of a father would allow his children to suffer when, he's the, when he has the ability to prevent it from happening. Okay? I have a... a, 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 a she's 16 months old yesterday. Um, a little daughter, Elena. If Elena was suffering in some way, well, she has suffered somewhat already in her short life, I want to prevent it. I want to do everything in my power 
to stop the pain, the suffering, the hurt that is affecting her. Okay? That's what a father does, isn't it? So if we call God Father, how come he doesn't stop the pain? Why does he allow it to persist? Why doesn't he take away the pain if he has the ability to do so? These are questions that millions of people have asked throughout history. Millions of Christians, faithful, believing Christians. Okay? And especially when we see cat catastrophes of the catastrophes, rather, excuse me, of the magnitude of the tsunamis or this earthquake or of hurricanes like Katrina. These questions really rise to the forefront because we see suffering not just of one or two individuals, which is horrible in and of itself, but we see suffering of thousands, millions of people. And we wonder how, or many people wonder, how can God allow this to happen? Okay. Again, though, as I, as I just noted, qualified it, it's not just in the big catastrophes, it's in the small things as well. My dad is 56. My dad will be 56 later this month, thank you. Um, he, 10 years ago, within the course of a year and a half, lost 95% of his vision. Actually, about 15 years ago, when he was about 40. He lost, went from having fairly good eyesight to literally having 6% of his vision left. And it's going. The, the, the eye doctors tell him by, by the time he's 60, he will be completely blind. Right now, he has this little spot that's sort of right here in his field of vision. Um, and that's all he can see. And as his son, for me to see him going through that, and he's a, he's a good German, so he doesn't really show his emotions too often. But I know that it's, well, regardless of how it affects him, as I know it does, it affects me to know that this is happening. His vision is, is quote-unquote, being taken away from him. Where is God? Jesus put spittle on, on one man's eyes and healed him. Why can't he heal my dad's vision? And I know that you all have your own, we all have our own individual stories of that nature, regarding ourselves or regarding others. Uh, not just at the, the, the level of catastrophes, but at the individual level, we face the reality of suffering and evil, and sometimes wonder why, and where are you, Lord? Okay. There's another example um, I could think of. After 9-11, Frontline, PBS's uh, news magazine Frontline, did a story, a documentary called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. Um, and, and they interviewed a number of people who either were in 9-11 or who had family members, wives and widows of firemen and policemen. And some of them had their faith strengthened ultimately because of 9-11. But one, I think of one woman in particular, her husband was a fireman who died um, trying to save people. And she's really struggling. When the documentary was made, at least, she was very much struggling um, with, with the reality or the question of God's existence and especially of his goodness. It's not just an existence, but his goodness as well, people sometimes question when they're faced with evil and suffering. Okay? So how do we respond to these sorts of questions? How do we offer, what, what is the Catholic answer to the angst that people feel in the face of suffering, whether it's their own or a loved ones or some strangers that, they, that they're aware of? Okay? The first thing I want to say, and something that is fundamental and essential to keep in mind, God does not desire suffering and evil. He does not desire suffering and evil. He may allow it, but he does not positively will it. He does not cause it to be. Okay, and this is a crucial point. There's a difference between God's positive will, when he decides to do something, to act, and his permissive will is what it's called. He, he allows something to happen. He doesn't positively will it. He allows it to happen. And there, there's an important distinction, especially for the purposes of this sort of a question, there's an important distinction between God's positive will and his permissive will. Okay? There are things that God intends to bring about and does bring about. There are other things that he simply allows to happen. Okay? Suffering and evil belong to the latter, not to the former. They are things that God allows to happen. Not, they're not things that he intends to happen. Okay? God may and does bring good out of suffering and out of evil. 
But good, suffering and evil are not some necessary means to a greater good. And this is also a very important point. Suffering and evil are not a necessary means to some greater good. So you think about God's providential plan for history, all of human history and salvation history. It's not as if for greater good X to happen, horrible suffering and evil Y need to happen first. That's not how God works. He is a loving God, and we'll talk more about this. He does not positively desire nor positively will evil and suffering to happen. Ultimately, in fact, ultimately, evil is literally nothing. It's not something created by God because it isn't anything. Again, St. Thomas Aquinas defines evil as the absence of a do-good. Evil is the absence of a good that should be present. Okay, so uh, if you think about the example of my dad's um, blindness, the evil or the, of, of blindness is not a, a tangible thing. It's the absence of something that should be there. There's a good vision that is lacking. And that lack is the, what the evil of, of, in this case, blindness is. And there are other examples of well that, that, that we could talk about, but the point is that evil is not a positive thing, either spiritual, let alone material. It's not something that you can, so to speak, put your hands on, because it isn't anything. It's the absence of something that should be there. Evil is the absence of a do-good, the lack of a do-good. Okay? This is important because it points to evil's nothingness. Again, evil is ultimately nothing. It's not something that God created and therefore that he could uncreate because it's not a thing in either a spiritual or a material sense. It's a lack, an absence. Okay? And, and the thing I want to stress again, it's not a means to an end in God's perfect plan. I, I, I don't think I can say that enough, but I'm only going to say it a couple more times. Some people do argue that evil is somehow necessary for the greater good, and that is not the case. That's not God's attitude. You may have heard the phrase, uh, well, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? You know who coined that phrase? Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was the one who, who came up with the phrase, you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. God is not a Leninist. Okay? That is not his attitude. Okay? But having said that, a question does remain. Okay? So evil isn't suffering. Or, sorry, evil isn't something that God created. It's not something he willed. But the fact remains that he could prevent it. Could he not? Even though it's not a thing, even though it is a lack, an absence, he could fulfill that lack or absence. Could he not? Again, then, why doesn't he? He's all-powerful, he's all-good, he's all-loving. Why does he not positively will something to correct that evil? that absence of a do-good. Okay? To continue to answer this question, we need to think about what happened at the beginning of human history when God first created the human race. Okay? It's important to recall how evil got its start in creation. As we know from the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, God created man and woman as the pinnacle of visible creation. We are the peak of creation visible material creation. Angels may be higher than we are overall, but when you talk about material reality, we are at the top of the list, so to speak. God created us as the, as the pinnacle of creation. If you look at the order of creation, God creates, he starts with the lower and concludes with the higher. On the sixth day, man is created. He finishes, he saves the best for last. And then actually, in Genesis chapter 2, God creates humanity as man and woman. And he creates man first and woman second. Again, some would say he saved the best for last, but we could argue about that later. Okay? So we are at the pinnacle of creation. All right? As such, in some way, all of creation is tied up in our fate. In some way, all of there's a connection, a mystical connection, between all of creation and the destiny of all of creation and ourselves, the, the human race. 
Okay, and we see this in the fall that we're told about in Genesis chapter 3. By their sin, the first man and woman impacted not just themselves. They also impacted all of humanity. But even more, they impacted all of creation. St. Paul tells us how creation is, all of creation, all of the entire universe is groaning in travail, waiting for the consummation of all things at the end of time. When Adam and Eve, when the first man and woman, when our first parents sinned against God, the first sin, original sin, it didn't just affect them, and it didn't even just affect the billions of human beings um, who have already existed in human history. It affected all of creation. So much so that the physical, even things like Katrina and earthquakes and tsunamis, ultimately go back to Adam and Eve. Because they were the pinnacle of creation, so when they fell, that fall impacted all of creation. Okay? The fall radically distorted our human nature, and it's because of that that moral evil is a reality. I think we're all familiar with that. Moral evil, the fact that we do bad things to one another, traces its origins as well to the fall, the, the, the original sin. Okay? So ultimately, physical and moral evil trace their, ultimately, the, are the fault of humanity, our first parents. Yes, they were tempted by Satan, but they remained free. And it's freedom that I want to talk a little bit about. This, because it's crucial to, to always remember that God respects our freedom. Yes, he could have intervened to prevent the fall. He could have stopped Adam and Eve from sinning against him. But he loves us and he loved them too much to have done so. What do I mean by that? God created all of us as human beings free, with free will. And he refuses to impinge on that freedom, whatever the price may be. Okay? If our parent, our ultimate first parents, Adam and Eve, had done the right thing out of compulsion because God forced them to, that would not have been a free act. And hence, it would not have been a truly human act. Okay? There's something mysterious about this, but, but God's respect for our freedom indicates his great love for us his great and immense love for us. Again, he created us, like everything else, out of nothing. We are creatures, he is the creator. And between us, as, cre as creator and creatures, there is an infinite gap. We, I, I, we cannot imagine the difference between us as God, God being the infinite, eternal creator, and we being temporal creatures. Okay? The difference between... Uh, think about the most banal of, of earthly things... Rocks, ants, I mean, anything, anything you don't like. The difference between that and us is obviously significant, but is infinitesimal. It is more than infinitesimal compared to the difference between us and God. We have far more in common with rocks and ants than we do with God. As humbling as that is to think about, it's true. God does not have a white beard. He does not sit on a throne somewhere. Okay, we, we oftentimes we, and to use the technical, technical term, we anthropomorphize God. We reduce him because we have to speak about him somehow. We use human language, but we sometimes forget that that's just the best way we have to speak about him. And sometimes we reduce him to a merely human level. We can't do that for many reasons, but one of them is re remembering the difference between us makes his love for us all the more amazing and profound. I mean, how many of you love rocks or ants? I mean, I, maybe some of you have ant farms for pets. I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't love ants, but God loves us. I mean, th that, the difference, between again, between... Creation and us, other creatures and us, is nothing compared to the difference between us and God. And yet God loves us far more than we love the things that are lower on the chain of being than ourselves. Okay? Um, how many of you have pets? Anybody have pets? Okay. How many of you, let's pretend that your pets are all dogs for a minute. How many of you, no, no, fish, goldfish. All your pets are goldfish. How many of you would become a goldfish and die to show your love to your goldfish? That's what God did for us. 
Okay, well, Father Lacey's brother would, but apart from him. Okay? God created us in his own image and likeness, and out of his infinite love for us, he respects our freedom and refuses to compel our love. He refuses to compel our love. You cannot compel love. Compelled love is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Love has to, of its nature, be given freely. It has to, you cannot force somebody to love you. Most of us, at least the guys, probably at some point have tried to get somebody to love them. It doesn't work. You have to, you, you, you can entice, you can love, but that love in return has to be freely given. Otherwise, it's not love. Okay? And again, it's precisely because God loves us so much and desires our own love in return that he, he refuses to compel us to act as we should. Remember, sin is ultimately a failure to love God as much as we ought to. God allows us to sin because he loves us so much, and he wants us to love him in return and not be forced to love him, even though you can't do that ultimately anyway. Okay? So, why is there suffering? Ultimately, it's because of the, of the fall. However, having said that, for many people, this is not a compelling answer. Okay? If somebody would come up to me, especially when I'm really struggling with my dad's blindness, and say, well, you know, it's Adam and Eve's fault. That's not going to go very far. I'd probably say something or do something very unkind. Okay? Because that answer, while true at a certain technical level, is insufficient, especially in the face of great suffering. Okay? So what more can we say to answer this question of why does God allow evil and suffering? Um, fortunately, in the Bible, in Scripture, we have an entire book that deals with this question. Anybody know what I'm which one I'm talking about? Job. Uh, a book from the Old Testament, in fact. The book of Job is, in its entirety, or in its entirety deals with this problem of evil and suffering. Um, it's a really important, especially, to get the full scope of what's going on in Job to remember the context. For the Old Testament mentality... If you did good, if you were a good person, you were blessed. How many of you heard of the prayer of Jabez? Or sometimes the prosperity gospel. You hear about some things, or sometimes. That's, sort, that's, that's that mentality. When you do good, good things will happen to you. If bad things happen to you, it's because you must have done something wrong. That's very much an Old Testament mentality. If you do good things, good things happen. If you do wrong things, bad things happen. So if something bad happens to you, again, you must have done something wrong somehow. Okay, That's the Old Testament mentality, and Job, the book of Job is a strong confrontation against that mentality. We're told at the beginning of the book of Job that Job was a righteous man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and avoided evil. And yet in the first two chapters, horrible things befall him. He was a, he was a wealthy man, ostensibly because he was such a good man. All of his, his possessions were taken away from him. His children were all killed. He, he, he was covered with boils. Um, all of these horrible things happened to him, even though he was an upright, virtuous man. So the rest of the book, what we see in the, virtually all of the rest of the book, he has three friends who come to him and try to convince him, listen, you must have done something wrong. These things wouldn't have happened to you if you didn't do something wrong. And through it all, Job strongly protests that he is innocent. He has done nothing wrong to deserve what, happens, what has happened to him. He has faith in God, but he continues, well, he struggles with his suffering. He struggles to understand why he, an innocent and virtuous man, is, 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 has suffered so greatly. And he seeks an answer from God. And God, in the end of the book, responds to Job, but he does not justify his actions. If you've read the book, you see that. God does not justify his actions. He is the almighty and omnipotent God whose wisdom and power are infinite. And we, as human beings, men and women, in the case of Job, Job, as a mere man, is in no place, no position to put God in the dock to put God on the witness stand, to put him on trial. Okay? And, and, and God basically, that, that's God's position pretty much. He appeals to Job and says, I'm the all-powerful, infinite God, all-knowing, full of wisdom. 
you are a mere man. And Job, in his great faith, is actually, he, he, he is convinced and convicted of, by that. That answer is enough for him, and he regains his faith. Uh, he recovers his humility and his trust in God, and God rewards him for not having cursed him. He struggled with his faith, but he never cursed God in spite of everything that happened to him, and God uh, rewarded him for that. So the moral of Job is God's actions are beyond our comprehension. God is an all-knowing, all-just, and most importantly for us and for this topic, an all-loving God. And the fact that we're not always able to reconcile those facts about him with great evil and suffering is not a fault of God's, but a failure of our own limited understanding. Okay? We are called to be like Job, to have that faith. However, once again, as with the explanation of the fall, it was all Adam and Eve's fault, this answer, too, is oftentimes insufficient in the face of great suffering. Okay? God, and God, of course, was under no obligation to go even further, but he did. Um, well, I can't use it. Behind here, there is a cross. The ultimate answer to the problem of, of evil and suffering is the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's the only adequate way to deal with suffering of any sort, our own or others. We may not be able to understand why God allows evil and suffering, but we know that he himself submitted it, himself to it and experienced it in his own humanity. And when we suffer, he is there with us. I think it's a little bit overly sentimental, but most of us have probably heard or, or read the poem Footprints, which has actually been set to uh, song, and I've heard it at more than one funeral. Um, I, I don't have it verbatim, but I, I think we're all familiar with it. There's a, the poet is writing, and, and he had a dream, and, um, or it's the end of his life, and he saw every, his, his life's, uh, all of his life flashed before him, and he's before God. But he notices, looking back through his life's history, that at the moments when he was in most need of God, when he was suffering the most, he did not see God's footprints and his own, but just one set of footprints. And so he asks God, Lord, why in these moments of great suffering, where were you with me? And, and, and God replies, my child, it is at those moments that I was carrying you. Okay, and it's a very, I mean, that paraphrase was pathetic, but if you read it, it's a very emotive, emotive poem, a, a powerful poem. Um, and it points out the fact that when we are suffering, God is there with us. Jesus is there with us if we are aware of it. That's, of course, always the, the challenge. But he is there with us, ready to sustain us in our suffering. Ultimately, we do not know why God allows suffering, but we know that he is there with us. We know that he suffered, and he is with us in our own suffering. And even more than that, he allows us to join our suffering to his own. And in so doing, we can, some good can come from our suffering. It can be, in fact, redemptive, salvific. By the mystery and the, by the power of the cross, when we suffer, we can choose to, to join our sufferings to those of Christ's. And because his sufferings are salvific for all of humanity, our sufferings become salvific for all of humanity. And St. Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 1.24. He speaks about how his sufferings make up for, for what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He uses very strong language, what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, ultimately, there was no definitive lack in Christ's sufferings, but St. Paul speaks that way to indicate that we can offer our sufferings up with our Lord's, and in so doing, they become redemptive and salvific for all of humanity, for all of creation. And innumerable saints and scholars have pointed out that ultimately, this is the only way for us to deal with suffering. This is the only way that, that, that the human being can ultimately deal with suffering that they face on their own or in others. And I'm not going to tell you that it's easy. I mean, it's easy for me to say it. It's not necessarily easy to do. But in the end, it's the, it's the best alternative we have. And really, and the, the, the fact that our suffering could be salvific and redemptive is, is, is another indication of God, God's great love on our behalf.
okay? In the end, our faith is not insufficient in the face of evil. Rather, our faith is necessary in the face of evil so that we can avoid despair and a plunge into meaninglessness, which too often suffering can lead to. Any questions? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait for Phil Donahue over here with the microphone to get to you if you have a question. Don't you think that our view of suffering in the United States, even with Katrina and, and the fires and the, and the, um, you know, the houses sliding because of the rains, mm -hmm. is really insignificant compared to people in others' countries' type of suffering? And we as Americans don't really have a clue. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the people who obviously experience the suffering themselves have something of a clue, but as a nation, definitely. I mean, if you think about the attention that was focused on New Orleans, and understandably so, I mean, I have uh, a number of friends and family members who had to evacuate uh, from New Orleans or the Gulf Coast um, and who have lost their homes uh, because of the hurricane. But Pakistan, 25,000 people are dead, at least, in Pakistan. Okay, New Orleans, I think the last death toll I heard was less than 900. And, and if you think about how much attention was paid by our media and by us, I mean, I'm including myself here, to what happened in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, and then look at how much attention the earthquake in Pakistan is getting, really, yeah, I, I think that uh, as Americans, sometimes we, we do have it too easy, and, and we, we forget that this sort of thing happens all the time throughout the world. There was, a, in South America, I think there was a, a hurricane that struck and killed hundreds of people this week, and, and, and we're in many ways clueless to that. But having said that, we, we can't deny and downplay the fact that in spite of, in many ways, our pampered lives, we still do encounter suffering you know, in, in the, at that individual level that we spoke about. I mean, disease and illness are present here, maybe not to the degree, but just as much as elsewhere. Any other questions? This isn't quite suffering, but with um, the media plays a lot on negativeness in general, and so since there's not as much positiveness in that, is that in some way evil in itself, that it's negative news and not positive? So is negative media coverage suff evil? Evil, not suffering, evil. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Not really. Not, <laughs> I, I guess it, I guess it depends on a specific instance. I mean, if you're just reporting what's happening, if obviously if you make an effort to, yeah, I, I guess it could lead people to despair to some degree. I, I don't think, though, that usually it's intentional. I mean, I, I, the reason I think bad news gets covered more is because, to be honest, it sells better. I, it, it's in many ways our fault. I mean, we... I don't want to say like, but there is a certain degree of perversity in watching. You know, I, I think that you know, a lot of people probably watched Katrina to see how bad it was going to be. You know? and, and so the media is feeding our own baser impulses, so they do have responsibility. But it, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of whose fault is that, ours or theirs? Both, probably. Any other questions? I guess I didn't mean to bring the main part of suffering to natural disasters as much as how um, we as Catholic Christians in the United States um, have it so easy compared to the suffering oh. of people in other countries or, yeah. or wherever. And, and our sufferings, I mean, everyone has loss of children, disease, or whatever, but but the suffering in our everyday life is so minimal compared to people in other countries, especially third world countries, that how can we even think of our suffering as bearing the cross? You're talking about persecution is more probably what you're talking about for our faith. It's, yeah, definitely there's a, a difference. But, I mean, even, even if our suffering is, compared to others, insignificant, we can still offer it. 
you know, I mean, it's maybe not be as, as, as great as other people's sufferings, but we can still offer it up to our Lord and join it to the cross. Any other questions? So how, how do you help family members or other people you know that have left the church are really bitter about their lot in life or their suffering and they really don't want to hear about God? Or they, they don't any, want, you, you don't, they, as soon as you bring up, they feel like you're preaching to them, kind of. Well, they just don't want to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like I pray a lot, but there's not much I can do. And I'm supportive in other ways, but right. as far as... That, they, won't that, e- they won't even ask you to say they're angry at God, but they really are. So yeah. how do you deal with that? I mean, I, That's a great question. How do you deal with it when people are angry at God and, and even leads them to, to leave the faith? I think what you said you're doing, to be honest, as much as we don't like to hear it that much, it, prayer is the most we can do. And, and pray specifically, maybe that they, at some point they do ask you that question. I think it's also important to remember that sometimes when it comes to faith that our family member, we are going to be probably the last person that our family asks when we're struggling with issues of faith. I know that that's the case with my family. Um, just because of all the baggage that goes with familial relationships, we're not the best ones necessarily to hear it from when it comes to our family members' difficulties. So I think praying that you know, they are able to ask and that they find somebody who are, they are able to talk to. As, as, in a sense, banal as that answer is, I do think that that's the best that we're able to do in many cases. Any other questions? There's that famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. What's your opinion on that book? I... I I've never read When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I understand it's a very good book. Um, the one thing I do know, the only negative, well, not negative, the only qualifier I'd add is it, it's written by a, a Jewish rabbi. And he, uh, he is therefore not able to bring the importance of the cross to his discussion. He, from what I've heard, I mean, I've heard people say great things about the book, and I know a little bit about it. Um, and it does have good things to say, and, and I wouldn't unrecommend it to anybody. But the fact that he's not able to talk about the cross is an important lack in the book. But I wouldn't discourage somebody from reading it. Peter Kreeft is a, a philosopher and apologist um, who has a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering, which is, which is another very good uh, book written for the layperson. If our suffering can be redemptive, is there a required choice in that fact? Or is we can suffer and have a really bad attitude about it, and God can still use that to, as, as salvific? Yes, uh, but, but there, you do have to will that it be joined to Christ's sufferings. So, yeah, in order for suffering to be redemptive, we have to positively desire that it be so. And hence the saying, offer it up. That is, you know, choose to join it to Christ's sufferings. It's not that just, you know, the suffering of somebody is redemptive. It only becomes redemptive when they choose to join it to Christ's. Um, Let's say in the past you had suffering that you didn't offer up because either you were bitter or you didn't even know you could. Now, can you go? Can you offer that past suffering to be redemptive? I think redemptive? you probably could. Just if you, because of God is in eternity. I mean, just the way, just as God was able to apply um, the merits of Jesus on the cross to Mary's conception and hence her immaculate conception, you know, He can apply merits backward. I would imagine that you'd able to, you'd be able to offer up past sufferings well after the fact. Uh, when I've taught before, this is related somewhat. I've told students, um, if they've taken a test, and, and the next class, I, 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 we're coming to the class, and I've got their tests graded, I tell them, you know, you can pray now for your test, because the prayer can work, in, you know, retroactively. And I think the same is true with offering it up, that you can offer it up after the fact. Any other questions?
Not that you're telling God what to do, but when you offer up redemptive suffering, when you do that, can you offer it for other people or? Yep. Yeah, you can offer. Yeah. Are like there circumstances that you know that somehow your redemptive suffering be used? You can for? ask it to be just just as you can just pray for a particular intention. You can offer your your suffering up for a particular intention. So definitely, you can apply it to per particular circumstance or person. Absolutely. Any other questions? Up here. So with fasting, that can be redemptive suffering too? Yeah. Penitential works, penitential works generally are by their nature because they're penitential works considered redemptive in their nature. They don't have to be, I suppose, but they usually are cons so considered. Any other questions? And I'll, you know, I'll be here after we're done with the public questions if anybody wants to come up and ask me something. Okay. okay, I want to thank you for coming. And again, tomorrow night, if you can make it, another take. Um, and then the next Theology and Tap is, I think the date is the 11th. It's the second Friday of Thursday. And uh, Father Bob Lacey will be speaking on Hilaire Belloc the early 20th century author. Then we'll be taking December off. We'll meet in January, and Father David Stevens from T is going to speak on the male-only priesthood. Okay? Thanks for coming, and we'll see you next month, or tomorrow night.